Act Four of Henry the Eighth by William Shakespeare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of Henry the Eighth, Act Four. Scene One: A Street in Westminster. Enter two gentlemen meeting one another. You're well met once again. So are you. You come to take your stand here, and behold, the Lady Anne pass from her coronation. Tis all my business. At our last encounter the Duke of Buckingham came from his trial. Tis very true, but that time offered sorrow. This general joy. Tis well. The citizens, I am sure, have shown at full their royal minds. As let them have their rights, they are ever forward, in celebration of this day with shows, pageants, and sights of honor. Never greater, nor, I'll assure you, better taken, sir. May I be bold to ask at what that contains, that paper in your hand? Yes, tis the list of those that claim their offices this day by custom of the coronation. The Duke of Suffolk is the first, and claims to be high steward, next the Duke of Norfolk, he to be Earl Marshal. You may read the rest. I thank you, sir. Had I not known those customs, I should have been beholding to your paper. But I beseech you, what's become of Catherine, the Princess Dowager? How goes her business? That I can tell you, too. The Archbishop of Canterbury, accompanied with other learned and reverend fathers of his order, held a late court at Dunstable, six miles off from Anthel, where the princess lay, to which she was often cited by them, but appeared not. And to be short, for not appearance in the king's late scruple, by the main ascent of all these learned men she was divorced and the late marriage made him none effect, since which she was removed to Kimbleton, where she remains now sick. Alas, good lady! Trumpets. The trumpets sound. Stand close. The queen is coming. Hot boys. The order of the coronation. One, a lively flourish of trumpets. Two, then two judges. Three, Lord Chancellor, with the purse and mace before him. Four choristers singing. Music. Five mayor of London bearing the mace. Then garter in his coat of arms and on his head a gilt copper crown. Six marquess d'orset bearing a sceptre of gold, on his head a demi coronal of gold. With him Surrey bearing the rod of silver with the dove crowned with an earl's coronet. Collars of SS. Seven. Suffolk, in his robe of estate, his coronet on his head, bearing a long white wand as high steward. With him, Norfolk, with the rod of marshalship, a coronet on his head. Collars of S.S. 8. A canopy borne by four of the Syncoports, under it, Queen Anne in her robe. In her hair, richly adorned with pearl, crowned. On each side her, the bishops of London and Winchester. 9 the old Duchess of Norfolk in a coronal of gold, wrought with flowers, bearing Queen Anne's train. 10. Certain ladies or countesses with plain circlets of gold without flowers. They pass over the stage in order and state. A royal train, believe me. These I know. Who's that that bears the scepter? Marquise Dorset, and that the Earl of Surrey with the rod. A bold, brave gentleman. That should be the Duke of Suffolk? Tis the same, high steward. And that my lord of Norfolk? 
Yes. Heaven bless thee. Looking on Queen Anne. Thou hast the sweetest face I ever looked on. Sir, as I have a soul, she is an angel. Our king has all the Indies in his arms, and more the richer when he strains that lady. I cannot blame his conscience. They that bear the cloth of honor over her are four barons of the sink ports. Those men are happy, and so are all are near her. I take it she that carries up the train is that old noble lady, Duchess of Norfolk? It is, and all the rest are countesses. Their coronets say so. These are stars indeed, and sometimes falling ones. No more of that. Exit procession, and then a great flourish of trumpets. Enter a third gentleman. God save you, sir. Where have you been broiling? Among the crowd in the abbey, where a finger could not be wedged in more, I am stifled with the mere rankness of their joy. You saw the ceremony? That I did. How was it? Well worth the seeing. Good sir, speak it to us. As well as I am able, the rich stream of lords and ladies, having brought the queen to a prepared place in the choir, fell off a distance from her, while her grace sat down to rest a while, some half an hour or so, in a rich chair of state, opposing freely the beauty of her person to the people. Believe me, sir, she is the goodliest woman that ever lay by man, which, when the people had the full view of, such a noise arose as the shrouds make at sea in a stiff tempest, as loud and to as many tunes. Hats, cloaks, doublets, I think, flew up, and had their faces been loose, this day they had been lost. Such joy I never saw before, great-bellied women that had not half a week to go, like rams in the old time of war, would shake the press, and make him reel before him. No man living could say, This is my wife, there. All were woven so strangely in one piece. But what followed? At length her grace rose, and with modest paces came to the altar, where she kneeled, and saint-like cast her fair eyes to heaven, and prayed devoutly, then rose again, and bowed her to the people, when, by the Archbishop of Canterbury, she had all the royal makings of a queen, as holy oil, Edward Confessor's crown, the rod and bird of peace, and all such emblems laid nobly on her, which performed the choir, with all the choicest music of the kingdom, together sung Te Deum. So she parted, and with the same full state, paced back again to York Place, where the feast is held. Sir, you must no more call it York Place, that's past, for since the cardinal fell, that title's lost. "'Tis now the king's and called Whitehall. "'I know it, but 'tis so lately altered "'that the old name is fresh about me. "'What two reverend bishops were those "'that went on each side of the queen?' "'Stokesley and Gardiner, "'the one of Winchester, newly preferred "'from the king's secretary, "'the other, London. "'He of Winchester has held no great good lover "'of the archbishops, the virtuous Cranmer. "'All the land knows that. "'However, yet there is no great breach.' When it comes, Cranmer will find a friend will not shrink from him. Who may that be, I pray you? Thomas Cromwell, a man in much esteem with the king, and truly a worthy friend. The king has made him master of the jewel-house, and one already of the privy council. He will deserve more. Yes, without all doubt. Come, gentlemen, ye shall go my way, which is to the court, and there ye shall be my guests, something I can command. 
As I walk thither, I'll tell ye more. You, you may command, command us, sir. sir. Exeunt. Scene two, Kim Bolton. Enter Catherine, dowager, sick, led between Griffith, her gentleman usher, and Patience, her woman. How does your grace? O oh, Griffith, sick to death, my legs like loaden branches bow to the earth, willing to leave their burden. Reach a chair. Oh, so now methinks I feel a little ease. Didst thou not tell me, Griffith, as thou ledst me, that the great child of honour, Cardinal Wolsey, was dead? Yes, madam, but I think your grace, out of the pain you suffered, gave no ear to it. Prithee, good Griffith, tell me how he died. If well he stepped before me, happily for my example. Well, the voice goes, madam, for after the stout Earl Northumberland arrested him at York, he brought him forward, as a man sorely tainted, to his answer. He fell sick suddenly, and grew so ill he could not sit his mule. Alas, poor man! At last, with easy roads, he came to Leicester, lodged in the abbey, where the reverend abbot, with all his covent, honorably received him, to whom he gave these words, Oh, Father Abbot, an old man, broken with the storms of state, is come to lay his weary bones among ye. Give him a little earth for charity. So went to bed, where eagerly his sickness pursued him still, and, three nights after this, about the hour of eight, which he himself foretold should be his last, full of repentance, continual meditations, tears, and sorrows, he gave his honors to the world again, his blessed part to heaven, and slept in peace. So may he rest, his faults lie gently on him. Yet thus far, Griffith, give me leave to speak him, and yet with charity. He was a man of an unbounded stomach, ever ranking himself with princes, one that by suggestion tied all the kingdom, Simony was fair play, his own opinion was his law. In the presence he would say untruths, and be ever double both in his words and meaning. He was never but where he meant to ruin pitiful. His promises were as he was then mighty, but his performance as he is now, nothing. Of his own body he was ill, and gave the clergy an example. Noble madam, Men's evil manners live in brass, their virtues we write in water. May it please your highness to hear me speak his good now? Yes, good Griffith, I wear malicious else. This cardinal, though from an humble stock, undoubtedly was fashioned to much honor from his cradle. He was a scholar, and a ripe and good one, exceeding wise, fair-spoken, and persuading, lofty and sour to them that loved him not, but to those men that sought him sweet as summer. And though he was unsatisfied in getting, which was a sin, yet in bestowing, madam, he was most princely. Ever witness for him those twins of learning that he raised in you, Ipswich and Oxford, one of which fell with him, unwilling to outlive the good that it did. The other, though unfinished, yet so famous, so excellent in art, and still so rising, that Christendom shall ever speak his virtue. His overthrow heaped happiness upon him, for then, and not till then, he felt himself, and found the blessedness of being little, and, 
to add greater honors to his age than man could give him, he died fearing God. After my death I wish no other herald, no other speaker of my living actions, to keep mine honour from corruption, but such an honest chronicler as Griffith, whom I most hated living, thou hast made me with thy religious truth and modesty, now in his ashes honour. Peace be with him. Patience, be near me still, and set me lower. I have not long to trouble thee. Good Griffith, cause the musicians play me that sad note I named my knell, whilst I sit meditating on that celestial harmony I go to. Sad and solemn music. She is asleep. Good wench, let's sit down quiet, for fear we wake her. Softly, gentle patience. The vision. Enter, solemnly tripping one after another, six personages, clad in white robes, wearing on their heads garlands of bays and golden vizards on their faces, branches of bays or palm in their hands. They first conge unto her, then dance, and at certain changes the first two hold a spare garland over her head, at which the other four make reverent curtsies. Then the two that held the garland deliver the same to the other next two, who observe the same order in their changes, and holding the garland over her head which done, they deliver the same garland to the last two, who likewise observe the same order, at which, as it were by inspiration, she makes in her sleep signs of rejoicing, and holdeth up her hands to heaven, and so in their dancing vanish, carrying the garland with them. The music continues. Spirits of peace, where are ye? Are ye all gone? And leave me here in wretchedness behind ye. Madam, we are here. It is not you I call for. Saw ye none enter since I slept? None, madam. No? Saw you not even now a blessed troop invite me to a banquet, whose bright faces cast thousand beams upon me like the sun? They promised me eternal happiness, and brought me garlands, Griffith, which I feel I am not worthy yet to wear. I shall assuredly. I am most joyful, madam. Such good dreams possess your fancy. Bid the music leave. They are harsh and heavy to me. Music ceases. Do you note how much her grace is altered on the sudden? How long her face is drawn? How pale she looks, and of an earthy cold. Mark her eyes. She is going, wench. Pray, pray. Heaven comfort her. Enter a messenger. And like your grace, you are a saucy fellow. Deserve we no more reverence? You are to blame, knowing she will not lose her wonted greatness, to use so rude behavior. Go to, kneel. I humbly do entreat your highness pardon. My haste made me unmannerly. There is staying a gentleman sent from the king to see you. Admit him entrance, Griffith. But this fellow let me ne'er see again. Exhumed Griffith and Messenger. Re-enter Griffith with Capucius. If my sight fail not, you should be Lord Ambassador from the Emperor, my royal nephew, and your name Capucius. Madame, the same, your servant. 
Oh, my lord, the times and titles now are altered strangely with me since first you knew me. But I pray you, what is your pleasure with me? Noble lady, first mine own service to your grace, the next, the king's request that I would visit you, who grieves much for your weakness, and by me sends you his princely commendations, and heartily entreats you take good comfort. Oh, my good lord, that comfort comes too late. Tis like a pardon after execution, that a gentle physic given in time had cured me. But now I am past the comfort here. But prayers, how does his highness? Madame, in good health. So may he ever do, and ever flourish, when I shall dwell with worms, and my poor name banished the kingdom. Patience, is that letter I caused you write yet sent away? No, madam. Giving it to Catherine. Sir, I most humbly pray you to deliver this to my lord the king. Most willing, madam. In which I have commended to his goodness the model of our chaste loves, his young daughter. The dews of heaven fall thick in blessings on her, beseeching him to give her virtuous breeding. She is young and of a noble, modest nature. I hope she will deserve well and a little to love her, for her mother's sake, that loved him heaven knows how dearly. My next poor petition is that his noble grace would have some pity upon my wretched women, that so long have followed both my fortunes faithfully, of which there is not one I dare avow, and now I should not lie, but will deserve for virtue and true beauty of the soul, for honesty and decent carriage, a right good husband, let him be a noble, and sure those men are happy that shall have him. The last is for my men. They are the poorest, but poverty could never draw em from me, that they may have their wages duly pay them, and something over to remember me by. If heaven had pleased to have given me longer life and able means, we had not parted thus. These are the whole contents. And good, my lord, by that you love the dearest in this world, as you wish Christian peace to souls departed, stand these poor people's friend, and urge the king to do me this last right. By heaven I will, or let me lose the fashion of a man. I thank you, honest lord. Remember me in all humility unto his highness. Say his long trouble now is passing out of this world. Tell him in death I blessed him, for so I will. Mine eyes grow dim. Farewell, my lord. Griffith, farewell. Nay, patience, you must not leave me yet. I must to bed. Call in more women. When I am dead, good wench, let me be used with honour. Strew me over with maiden flowers, that all the world may know I was a chaste wife to my grave. Embalm me, then lay me forth, although unqueened yet like a queen, and daughter to a king inter me. I can no more. Exeunt leading Catherine. End of Act Four.